Hello, my name's Chris Goswami. I'm the Associate Minister of Lynn Baptist Church. And today, I'm going to do the hardest thing I've ever done at this church. Been here for three years and this is the hardest thing I've been asked to do. Neil, who's our camera guy, has asked me, told me actually, to stay within this little square on the ground and not walk around. Is that right, Neil? Yeah, hallelujah. Right, yeah, well, I'll try. I'll do my best. Now, it is difficult. It's like having a ball and chain on me. It's worse than being married. That's a joke, by the way. But today we're starting our new uh, series online of the Hebrews book, the book of Hebrews. And um, we're going to start, actually, by talking about Moses. Now, I'm sure you've heard the story of Moses, or I'm sure you're familiar with the name Moses. There have been many films over the last mm, probably 50 years. Uh, The Ten Commandments, Prince of Egypt, some of them authentic, some of them not so authentic. And uh, he's become a very well-known story, a very well-known character. Let's just uh, think about Moses for a few minutes. He was a great man of God. Moses lived around 1400 to 1500 BC, something like that. Ancient history we're talking about. And it's the time when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. They were enslaved to, to do construction work by the Egyptians. And what happens in the story of Moses is that God calls him, God speaks to Moses and says to Moses, I want you to, let, to get my people out of Egypt. I want you to go to Pharaoh and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Now Moses doesn't want to go. He makes all kinds of excuses like, um, I'm a really bad speaker. Uh, can you find somebody else? Look, there's my brother, send him. But in the end, Moses does go. As God's messenger to his people, Mo- Moses goes and tells the people, you're to come out of Egypt. And he goes to see the head of Egypt, at that time is Pharaoh, and says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. Unsurprisingly, Pharaoh says, "Uh, no, I think this is quite a good deal, actually. These guys are working for us for free. Why would I let them go? So Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. But then God sends ten disasters on Egypt. Uh, ten plagues of Egypt, we call them. There's the plague of boils, where people come out in spots. The plague of gnats. There's a, there's a disaster where the river turns to blood. Uh, there's a disaster of darkness, where it just all goes dark. And right at the end, uh, after every one of these, Pharaoh still refuses to let the Israelites go from Egypt. Until right at the end, God sends the worst disaster, which is the death of the firstborn, the firstborn child of each family, the firstborn uh, cattle from each herd, dies one night. The firstborn of Pharaoh dies, the firstborn of the guy who manages Pharaoh's livestock dies. This is the most awful calamity ever to happen. And at the end of that, Pharaoh says, go, take your people and just go, I've had enough. So, the Israelites leave Egypt with Moses at their head. It's a great triumphal procession. They're walking out with the wealth of Egypt on foot and they leave. But a few days later, Pharaoh's thinking to himself, I've made a big mistake. We had all this free labour, we had all these people working for us, doing all these awful jobs as our slaves, and I've let them go. So Pharaoh musters his army together and says, let's go and get them back. Pharaoh then, on chariots and horses, pursues these people who are on foot in order to bring them back to Egypt. And uh, they get, there's this scene, which I'm sure you're familiar with, where the people of Israel are trapped. They reach the Red Sea, and in front of them is this great stretch of water. And behind them, closing in on them, 
are the Egyptian army. Chariots and horses and spears coming at them. And they're stuck there. And then, I think it's Exodus 14, is one of my favourite lines in the whole Bible. It's one of the most sarcastic lines in the Bible. The people are looking at this situation, saying, the sea's in front of us, we're going to get killed by these Egyptians behind us. And they look at Moses and they say, Moses, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? It's like, Moses, you're hell-bent, clearly, on killing us. Well, at least in Egypt we had food to eat, we had, we had beds to sleep on. Were there not enough graves that you brought us into the desert? But Moses says, stand still and see what God will do today. And then we have this uh, miracle. The, the Lord sends a wind that blows all night, an east wind that drives back the Red Sea and creates dry land. And the people of Israel, with Moses at their head, cross the dry, the, the dry land. We call it the, the parting of the Red Sea. When the Egyptians try to follow, the, the wind ceases, the water comes back and they're drowned. It's a great military victory. Then the people of Israel celebrate this victory and they continue into the desert with Moses at their head. Eventually, they will get to the promised land where God is leading them to. It takes 40 years to get there. And on the way there, they stop at Mount Sinai and Moses ascends Mount Sinai and comes down with the Ten Commandments, which I'm sure you also have heard of. Um, Keep the Sabbath, don't take the Lord's name in vain, and then lots of do-nots. Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not murder, da-da-da. Ten commandments, ten rules to live by. And eventually, at the end of this story, Moses gets the people to the edge of the promised land, and there he dies. So there, in a nutshell, is the story of Moses from the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. But actually, today, we're looking at a book in the New Testament called Hebrews. Uh, The book of Hebrews takes a lot of material from the Old Testament and from from the story of Moses, as we'll see. The book of Hebrews was written to a people who were mainly Jews. Uh, Most of the early Christians, many of the early Christians were Jews, converting to Christianity. Uh, All the disciples were Jews. Paul was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. In fact, he was uh, a very good rabbi, but also a very troublesome rabbi, as we will see. So they've got this Jewish history. They know the stories. They know the story of Exodus, the story of Moses very well. And the writer to the Hebrews uses this. So let's read, let me read to you from the NIV version first, this little account from Hebrews chapter 3. If you have a Bible, it's Hebrews chapter 3, from verse 1 to about verse 8. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope 
in which we glory. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. So, what's that about? It's a bit sounds a bit complicated, lots of things going on. There's Moses, there's Jesus, there's some builders, there's a house. Well, basically, the big idea here is that the writer writing this book to Jewish converts in the first century is saying, basically, is comparing Jesus, the principal character of the New Testament, with Moses, one of the central characters of the Old Testament. It's a comparison. Let me read it to you again in a more modern translation called The Message. So again, Hebrews chapter 3, the first few verses. And so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus, whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. For he was faithful to God who appointed him, just as Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house. But Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses, just just as a person who builds a house deserves more praise than the house. For every house has a builder, but the one who builds everything is God. Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. His work was an illustration of the truth that God would reveal later. But Christ, as his son, is in charge of God's entire house. And we are God's house if we keep our courage and remain confident to our hope in Christ. That is why the Holy Spirit says, Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. So the writer is saying that Moses was faithful, but Jesus was more faithful. He's somehow saying that Jesus was greater than Moses. Jesus deserves more glory than Moses, just as the person who builds a house deserves more honour than the house. But in what way is Jesus greater than Moses? So two things I want to discuss today. The first one, let's do this comparison of Moses with Jesus and see their similarities and differences. And then secondly, what does being greater actually mean? And how can we be great? So let's dive in. You've heard the story of Moses. Let me tell you in a nutshell as well the story of Jesus. Jesus obviously lived after Moses. Moses was about 1500 BC. Jesus was about around 0 AD. And the vast majority of scholars agree with that, Christian or non-Christian. They agree that Jesus was born around 0 AD in an obscure, poor family. Nothing particular to recommend him. He wasn't highly educated. He didn't look great. He led a very human life. He went to parties with his friends and his families. He laughed. He wept once when one of his friends died. He never, through it all, he never did anything wrong or thought anything wrong. And he started to become well-known when he was about 30 years old. He became well-known first because he could somehow change the laws of nature. He healed people. We call them miracles. He once healed a blind man. He healed a man who couldn't walk. He once healed a woman who had a discharge of blood that had gone on for 12 years. Once, uh, and he could change the laws of nature. Once, when they were on the Sea of Galilee, um, he he was in a boat asleep, and there was a great storm on the sea. The disciples woke him up and said, Jesus, don't you care about us? We're going to drown. Jesus stands up and looks at the waves and says, calm down. 
and looks at the wind and says, hush now. And the storm just peters away. Jesus could command the laws of nature, but that's not the main reason that why he attracted attention. In fact, Jesus often said, after he performed a miracle, he often said to people, don't talk about this miracle. Don't go on about it. No, the main reason that Jesus attracted attention was because of the idea that he brought. He brought a new idea, a new story. Jesus brought us the, the idea that God, that originally God and people were in a perfect relationship. We were always in a perfect relationship with God. But things went wrong. Wrongdoing entered the world. Wrong thinking entered the world. Or what we call sin entered the world. Death entered the world. And that has broken our relationship with God. But God is bringing back all people who are far away. And as it turned out, he does it. He would do it through the death of Jesus, his own dear son. That's the message that Jesus was bringing. It was not a popular message. Uh, it was a subversive message. It subverted the, the authorities. Of course, in that time, in the time of Jesus, there were many travelling rabbis. Uh, but Jesus attracts many followers as he goes around. People are attracted to him by the things he does. They say, we've never seen anything like this. No one ever spoke to us like this before. We've never heard anything like this. And they love the way he takes on the authorities the religious authorities. He lambasts them. He criticises them for their hypocrisy. He really has a go at them with some vitriol. He says he calls them, he calls them whitewashed tombs, broods of vipers. He calls them some really quite uh, awful names. And he criticises them for the way that they've monopolised religion and are oppressing the poor. That's why, as I said earlier, he was also a troublesome rabbi. So he attracts the attention of the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities. They find him a troublemaker, an insurgent, a subversive. And eventually they get their way, it seems. And the end of the story seems to be when Jesus is taken to a cross and executed. It's an awful, appalling ending. His disciples run away. They're scared stiff. Peter denies that he even knows him. He's deserted by his friends and it looks like the end. But the story continues because three days later people start saying, this Jesus is alive again. We've seen him. First a group of women, then the disciples. We've seen him. And something gives these disciples the courage to come back. Remember they all deserted Jesus on, just before Good Friday. They all leave him. But then they all come back and start saying, Jesus is alive. And they start telling people that Jesus is alive and other people see him as well. <clears throat> and then this frightened bunch of disciples starts proclaiming openly in the forums, in the town squares, that Jesus is alive. The authorities don't like it. The authorities arrest them. They have them whipped. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, uh, Peter is whipped and put in prison. This is the same Peter who denied and even knowing Jesus. And he comes out of prison and he says to the authorities, he's not the, the scared man that he was previously, he says, you judge for yourselves whether it is right for me to obey men or to obey God because I cannot stop speaking of what I have seen and heard I cannot stop speaking of what I have seen and heard they just have to carry on telling people and the authorities are dumbfounded these are unschooled men they say where did they get this authority from where did they get this ability to articulate they're just fishermen 
So these men start telling the same story that Jesus told, that God is bringing back people who are far away. And this story spreads like wildfire. Sometime later, uh, Acts chapter 11, uh, people start calling these people Christians. They say, oh, you're one of those followers of the Christ, a, a Christian. And some years later, they start to write this story down in books, which we call the New Testament, part of which we've read this morning. And so begins a new movement, a, new, a whole new movement. Today, that this movement has 2.2 billion followers. It's in almost every country of the world, and we call it the church. Now, let's do what the, the writer of the letter does. So, I've given you, in a nutshell, Moses, the story of Moses, and the story of Jesus. Let's compare the two. Are there really comparisons? So there are some similarities and some differences. So like Moses, Jesus was also born into an obscure family. And uh, he was also God's messenger to his people, just like Moses, to a people who are in slavery. In the case of Moses, they were physically in slavery to the Egyptians. In the case of Jesus, it's a people who are enslaved to a world that's broken. To, to enslaved to wrongdoing, enslaved to wrong thinking, enslaved to death, which inevitably takes everybody. Jesus, whereas Moses brought uh, the book of the, the Ten Commandments, Jesus actually brings us only two commandments. You see, what happened after Moses, the religious authorities, who Jesus criticised, they took those ten laws and kept adding to them and adding to them and adding to them, until eventually, if you look through the Old Testament, there are not 10 rules, there are 613, 613 rules in the Old Testament that people are meant to follow. Who can remember 613 rules? Nobody can do that. And it's just a way where the, the, religious, the religious elite can oppress the people because they, they can't remember 613 rules. But Jesus comes along and says, guys, don't worry about the 613 there's only two rules. There's only two. Number one, love God. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. And the second rule, love your neighbour as yourself. Love the people around you, your neighbour in the streets, your colleague at work, the members of your family. Love God, love your neighbour. Everything else flows from these. Um, Moses, as we heard, had a great military victory. The climax is this military victory at the Red Sea. Jesus also has a victory. He goes right into the stronghold of his enemies, but he does it riding on the back of a baby donkey. Not what you'd expect a military leader to do. But he's not a military leader. He, he subverts and he overcomes, but he does it in a new way. Moses died a great man of God. <clears throat> Jesus died, but came back from death. He was God made man. So we start to see, don't we, some of the similarities and some of the differences that this writer, who's writing to Jews who know the stories of Moses, that he's using. <clears throat> see, one of the big differences is that Jesus dies for all the wrong in the world, all the wrongdoing, all the wrong thinking. He takes it on himself as he's on the cross. He takes the punishment for all those wrong things. And then he defeats death as the final proof that by believing in Jesus, we also can defeat death. He defeats death. 
And hence the writer of this book says, we can now understand, says to his Jewish readers, yeah, Moses was great. He was great. But Jesus is greater in all these ways. So then lastly, (coughs) excuse me, what kind of greatness is this that Jesus brings, that Jesus calls us to? What kind of greatness are we talking about here? In what ways is Jesus great? See, Jesus didn't have a great military victory. He wasn't greatly educated. He didn't write a big book of rules for us to follow. He didn't write anything, as far as we know. Well, I would say Jesus brings and shows us two kinds of greatness. The first one is the obvious kind of greatness. Jesus was there, the Bible tells us, at the start of creation, right at the beginning. He created the universe as we know it. He created time. He created the galaxies, the planets, the solar system. He created the nebulae, the the supernova, the black hole, the dark matter. He is great. That is one kind of greatness. But if we just leave it there, and many religions do, we miss a hugely important part that that's not the greatness that Jesus calls us to. Jesus modelled greatness to call us to. And the, Jesus that great, the, the, sorry, the greatness that Jesus models is quite different. See, Jesus rejected this world's view of what makes a person great. In fact, he takes our views of greatness and turns them upside down. Many times in scripture you will see this. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus realises that the children are completely accepting of him. They are coming to him with open hearts, saying, we accept you. But the grown-ups, the adults, are always suspicious. And Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've revealed these th- that you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Lord, this is what you were pleased to do. Sometimes our great learning can stop us from being great gets in the way of greatness. At the Last Supper, on the night before he died, Jesus puts a towel around his waist and then he literally washes the dirty, stinking feet of his disciples. It's a a servant's job. And he's there as God in the form of man, but he's doing the job of a servant to teach them something. He even washes the feet of the man who will betray him, Judas. See, sometimes uh, pride our pride gets in the way of greatness. And then uh, if we think about Peter, Peter, at at Jesus' arrest, tries to defend Jesus. He pulls a sword out and strikes uh, the servant of one of the men who's, uh, uh, who's about to arrest Jesus and cuts his ear off. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know, don't you know that I could call upon my father and he will at once sent 12 armies of angels don't you know that by now but that's not the way it's to be see sometimes physical strength can get in the way of greatness no Jesus actually defined greatness because one, once, uh, one occasion in Matthew chapter 20 the disciples are having an argument about which one of them is the greatest which is the one that Jesus depends on who is it that sits next to Jesus who is the one that uh, Jesus relies on as a friend and they're all saying well I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest Jesus knows they're having this discussion and he says the last line of what he says is if you, whoever wants to be the greatest of all must become the servant of all 
Whoever wants to be the greatest of all must become the servant of all. This is a different kind of greatness. It's really hard. It's very doable, but it's hard to think through, isn't it? One other, let me just put it one other way. <clears throat> There's a speaker, Glenn Scrivener, and uh, he put it like this. He said, most often in our world, in the way our world works, is survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest, sacrifice of the weakest. That's the way it works in nature. You see it, for example, a cheetah uh, hound, c- c- uh, coming down on a, on a wildebeest. The cheetah survives, sac- uh, survival of the fittest, the wildebeest doesn't. Sacrifice of the weakest. Even now, with this awful situation that we've got in our world, with this virus, left unchecked, we would see the survival of the fittest and the sacrifice of the weakest. In its, in its natural form, that's how nature works. Not just nature, it's how corporate culture works. You often see it in companies. Companies that can turn a profit quarter on quarter are the ones that go get IPO'd, that get listed on the stock market. Uh, other companies get thrown against the wall. Survival of the fittest, sacrifice of the weakest. But God says it doesn't have to be that way. And in Jesus, in the example of Jesus, we see the exact opposite. We see the sacrifice of the strongest, sacrifice of the strongest, and the survival of the weakest. You see, Jesus was the most perfect man who ever lived. The most perfect man in every sense, never did anything wrong. And yet, he willingly goes to a Roman cross, the Roman's favourite instrument of of, uh, torture and execution, and he submits to that, himself to that, as an act of submission. We see in Jesus the sacrifice of the fittest for the survival of the weakest for us. So, we see that greatness in the kingdom of God is different to in our world. Greatness in the kingdom of God is often another word for service. It's another word for sacrifice. It's another word for love. Strong love, powerful love, sacrificing love. That's greatness in Jesus' book. And it's to this greatness that our God, our servant king, calls us. So, God invites you to this greatness today. God invites you to be great. If you've never known Jesus... God invites you to come see his greatness. Come know this great God. And if you already know Jesus, God invites you to become a greater follower. To become a greater follower with greater acts of service, of sacrifice, of love. There are many opportunities right now, aren't there, for us to serve one another in this situation that we face in our world. But in the future, there will be even more when we get back together There'll be so many opportunities for sharing, for listening, for caring for one another, for reaching out and helping one another. And God says that's how to become great. It's not easy, but it is greatness. Be great, says Jesus, as our servant king, our servant God is great. So, let me uh, wrap, wrap this up. This invitation to greatness from God is for anyone. This invitation to greatness is for anyone who's looking for a life with purpose, with meaning, with direction. This invitation to greatness is for anyone who sees the celebrity greatness, the financial greatness of the world and realises it's paper thin. This invitation to greatness is for anyone who has looked at what goes on in the world and says, there must be more than this. 
This invitation to greatness is for anyone. This invitation for greatness is for you. It's for everyone. Remember that verse at the end of the passage uh, that we read this morning? It just, this was just a little verse tacked on. And it said, today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So, we've, we've covered a lot of ground today. We've started 1500 BC with Moses. We've gone to 0 AD with the story of Jesus. But let's bring it now to 2020. <coughs> to you and I, to where we are today. And the Holy Spirit says today, to, all, to you and to me, today, if you can hear God's voice, through this, through the passage we read. Don't harden your heart. Don't just say, well, that was vaguely interesting, what's next? There's a response to something we can do. If you've never known Jesus, God invites you to come know his greatness. Come see it for yourself. If you do know Jesus, God says, come be a great follower. Be a great follower. I'm going to pray for us briefly. And uh, if, you, if you want to pray with me, please do. And don't hesitate to get in touch with us using the emails below this video. So let's pray now. Lord, we thank you <clears throat> that you are a mighty God, mighty in splendour and majesty. You created all things. But we thank you, Lord, that you are also great in love, great in service, great in sacrifice. That you sacrifice yourself for every one of us. Thank you, Lord, that that love is comforting, it's reassuring us today, it's life-changing, even in troubling times. Heavenly Father, we just pray, Lord, now, Father, for this, that you would speak to everybody watching this today. Lord, that you would speak into our hearts and that those of us, Lord, who need to know this greatness would, would take a step and say yes to you today. And for those of us who already know you, Lord, that we would take a step and say we want to be greater followers. We want to be better followers. We want to be more sacrificing, more serving, more loving followers of this great servant king. And the blessing of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, watch over you and keep you today. Amen.